Well, there's a familiar sight at this time of year. I'll guarantee that you both received and sent Christmas cards with an image something like that on it, showing three wise men, probably mounted on their camels and probably with a star somewhere. I trawled through about 200 images of the, of the wise men to see if I could come up with anything different because, of course, <laughs> we don't know how many there were. We're stuck with the idea of three because of the three gifts that they brought. We don't know that they came on camels. They may well have come on horses, said one source that I looked up. Um, I hope they didn't walk. It would have been a very long, long journey for them. Nor do we know exactly where they came from. Because it says the east, we think it might have been Persia. And there are all sorts of speculations as to who they actually might have been. I found a very interesting reading. On the one hand, you've got those who say, let's just stick with what the Bible says, that they were wise men, wise men from the east, full stop. To the other end of the spectrum that says the Magi were actually a clan, a tribe in Persia who were the kingmakers. They were responsible for finding and crowning the kings of Persia. And there was no king at this time. And so they, they, their senses were alert on the lookout for a king. And while it wasn't the king of Persia, they were very aware that a king was to be born. Well, I don't know either. And I'm going to stick with what the scripture says about the wise men from the east and we'll leave it at that. Then there's the star. You get into all sorts of wonderful speculations about what the star was. Was it a conjunction of the planets? Was it a comet? Was it some configuration in one of the constellations that told people who were into astrology that a king was to be born and um, there was one interpretation that there was one of the constellations that actually said it would be a king of the Jews? Well, I don't know either. But I'll tell you what, there must have been something miraculous about that star, whatever it was, because any stars that I've ever seen are up there in the sky somewhere and they certainly don't shine a light down on a particular house. So if the star led them to the house where Jesus and Mary and Joseph were, there had to be something else miraculous about that star. So let's not worry about what the star was either. Let's just stick with what the scripture says, that the star came and showed them where baby Jesus was. So before we go any further, let's have a look at the passage from the Bible, and I've taken it from the New Living Testament. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. I'll bet they were if anybody threatened Herod, they'd all have been disturbed too. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men 
and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me, so that I can go and worship him too. And he must have been poking a hole right through his cheek with his tongue when he said that. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Heavenly Father, help us to just put aside all the speculation and wonder about the wise men and instead to concentrate on exactly what it is you want to learn, want us to learn from that story and see in our lives today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I think that all that speculation, interesting as it is, can detract from the climax of this story, which for me is that as they entered the house and saw the baby Jesus, it says they bowed down and worshipped him. Now they'd come with gifts for a king, but it wasn't just any old king. You don't worship a king. Now, mind you, in ancient times, there were kings who decreed that you had to worship them because they were gods, but those were adult kings. We're talking about a newborn baby. And if you think back 18 months ago or whenever it was that Prince George was born, there were millions of people around the world poised in front of their television sets to watch the baby prince and his royal parents emerge from the hospital and there were oohs and ahs of delight that went up around the whole world, never never mind just his immediate family. But nobody worshipped Prince George. He would be probably the most famous baby in the world today, known by millions, but nobody worshipped him. Whereas in this case, the wise men came to worship Jesus. And that to me is the key point. We've just celebrated Christmas. And as far as I can see, if anybody's worshipped at Christmas time, it's Santa Claus. Because I notice that when we have carols by candlelight or one of those occasions, we sing the carols about the birth of Jesus. Yes, we do all of that. Yes, we mention the nativity. Yes, we talk about Mary and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds and we sing all of those carols. But the high point is the visit of Santa Claus. That's the one that the children are ready to worship because he's the one that's going to bring you all the presents, isn't he? But in this case, here we are worshipping Jesus and they recognise that he was more than just an earthly king. Now, the particular thing that I want to look at this morning is the gifts that they brought him. Now, you realise, of course, that these were wise men and not wise women because had they been wise women, they wouldn't have been bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. What rubbish for a newborn baby except perhaps the gold. Wise women, women would have brought nappies and baby clothes and casseroles. But these were the gifts that they brought for the king. Now, 
I don't believe that the first wise man scratched his head and said, what on earth am I going to bring this king? Oh, I know, gold. Gold's always the best. You, you can't go wrong bringing gold. Right, down to the bazaar and buy some gold. And then the second one said, ah, oh, actually that was my idea. You pinched my idea. Well, the next most precious thing on this earth is frankincense. All right, so if you've pinched my idea of gold, I'd better go and buy some frankincense. And out he went. And then the third one said, well... What's left for me to buy that's precious in the market? All right, I'd better bring some myrrh. No. We show them, if, if you've watched a nativity play with children or you set up a little nativity scene in your lounge room, you will have the three wise men, each with a gift, sort of in single file. Here's the gold, here's the frankincense, here's the myrrh. But it didn't come like that. Gold, frankincense and myrrh is a package. It's a package deal and it's what you gave a king in ancient times. Not one or the other, but all three because they were the three most precious things around. Frankincense was about the same value weight in weight as gold. It was hugely, hugely expensive. Myrrh was about half the value. But mind you, I'll guarantee that if it weren't for the Christmas story, You'd never have heard of frankincense and myrrh. They hardly feature largely on the list of Christmas presents that you either gave or received this last year or in any other year during your life. Mind you, if you go to the internet, you could order them because that's a set that's available on the internet and you can give them to somebody next Christmas if you really want to. I thought it was rather a, rather a nice picture. I cannot believe for the price they're being offered that that is real frankincense and myrrh, but never mind. Now, gold. We always give three traditional meanings to these presents that were brought. And those traditional meanings are true. I don't want to underrate them. I want to add something as well. But those meanings are there. We always think of gold as being associated with kings. And the association of gold and king, I absolutely love um, 2 Chronicles chapter 9 because it talks about gold in the, in the court of King Solomon. I think that this passage sounds like it comes out of a chapter of the Arabian Nights or some child's fairy story. It is so over the top. I love it. This is what it says. I'll just read you a bit of it. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was about 23 tonnes. Not including the revenues brought in by merchants and traders. Also, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. The king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. The throne had six steps, and a footstool of gold was attached to it. On both sides of the seal of the seat were armrests, with a lion standing beside each of them. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. 
success comes to my mind, I have to say. So there is no doubt in anyone's mind that gold is associated with royalty. And so we always think of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This gift of gold is prophetic of who he is and who he is today, not just as a baby and during his lifetime. He is our King of King, Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we think of frankincense as being associated with worship. But I want to tell you there's not a lot of difference in meaning between these three gifts that were given. Think of the temple. What was the actual focal point of the entire tabernacle first and then the temple? Go to the Holy of Holies and what was in the Holy of Holies? First of all, there was the chest, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with gold, but what sat on top of it? The atonement cover. And that was pure gold. And there were fashioned over that base of gold two angel-like figures, two cherubim. And right there between the cherubim on top of that golden cover was the place that symbolised God meeting with his people. So even although gold speaks to us of kings, it also speaks of worshipping God because this is the kind of focal point of the worship of the Jews. This is where the high priest once a year brought that sin offering on behalf of the people. And this kind of represents their worship, their contact, their fellowship with God. It's where God met with his people. So gold also speaks to us of the worship and, and, and that Jesus was divine, Jesus was God. It's through his death and resurrection that we can actually meet with God. So that's bound up with the gold. Now what about the frankincense and myrrh? They were actually quite similar. They're both the resin of trees that grow around the Mediterranean, particularly in Arabia and sometimes in parts of um, East Africa and in the Near East as well. Frankincense is very uh, costly and was in those days because the resin just dropped naturally from the tree and it was gathered. Myrrh, they actually stripped the bark back and as you strip the bark, the resin would flow down and then they would do that again and again and again. So it was easier to get hold of myrrh and so it was only about half the cost of frankincense. But frankincense was so highly prized in the ancient world Now, they were both used in worship. Again, and we're going to sing We Three Kings of Orient Orient Are, and frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. We always take that meaning of frankincense as worship. But if you read in Exodus, in the same chapter, where it says that frankincense is the incense that's to be burnt, on the altar and the sweet perfume is like our prayers rising to God. It also says that myrrh is to be part of the anointing oil. So they are both associated with worship. Now I'm going to come back to that thought about the frankincense as and that sweet savour, that sweet aroma of that burning as representing our prayers. I'm going to come back to that later. But there's another thing about both frankincense and myrrh. They are both associated with embalming the dead 
or if not the actual process of embalming, of wrapping something that is sweet-smelling in the winding sheet that they would enclose a body in. Now, because frankincense was used for the incense in the uh, temple, people were forbidden from using frankincense for their own personal use. Mind you, um, I'll read you in a minute where somebody didn't take notice of that, but never mind. Um, so myrrh was the usual spice that was a sweet-smelling thing that was wrapped up with a, with a body and that was with Jesus' body. Um, when he was laid in the tomb, myrrh was one of the sweet-smelling things that was included in his winding sheet. But frankincense was much prized by the Egyptians and as a matter of fact, when Howard Carter opened up Tutankhamun or Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922, there was still a slight odour of frankincense there. Now, King Tutankhamun was buried 3,200 years previously. Can you imagine the amount of frankincense that must have been in that tomb for there to be a lingering odour all that time later? So both frankincense and myrrh speak to us about the death and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But there are other uses for them. They were both perfumes. Now, I'm wafting around today in a cloud of Victoria Beckham perfume that my daughter gave me for Christmas. She's just suddenly decided that though she doesn't like Victoria Beckham, that her perfume is beautiful, so she's just given it to everybody for Christmas. I'll guarantee you in Australia that if a man goes into the perfume section of a department store, it's in order to buy a perfume for his wife or his girlfriend. But I'm not talking about women. I'm talking about men here with perfume because myrrh and frankincense are male perfumes. They were also used by women, but they are male. So please, the men don't go to sleep at this point. This is not about women, this is about men. From the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, made from all the spices of the merchants? Look, It is Solomon's carriage. It was Solomon who was wafting around in a cloud of perfume. Now, men of the Middle East, in Jesus' day and still today, like perfume. And there was no perfume prized like frankincense. It was the most precious of perfumes. Again, I'll come back to that in a moment because I want to point out something else that we don't ever hear about in connection with these gifts that the wise men brought. There's another use for frankincense and myrrh. Not only for perfuming and embalming and all the rest of it, they were also prized for medicinal purposes. Now, I can't remember which was used for what, but between the two of them, you could treat arthritic pains, asthma and other breathing problems, digestive upsets, parasites, internal parasites, 
all sorts of women's uterine problems and gum disease. Now that's just a, a little selection of the medicinal purposes to which frankincense and myrrh were put. Now can you see another prophecy in these gifts that were given to Jesus? You've only got to flip over the next page in Matthew and what does the heading say? Jesus healed the sick. But I don't ever remember hearing anybody talking about these gifts prophesying Jesus' ability to heal. And to me, this is a very precious part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus didn't come just to heal physical ailments. He came to heal the sin-sick soul. He came to put together broken hearts. Jesus' healing is for emotional and spiritual healing as well as physical healing. But what a wonderful prophetic gift the frankincense and myrrh were, looking not just at his death and resurrection, looking not just at the fact that he was God, but looking at the fact that he brings healing. And so he brings healing today. You are welcome to come at the end of the service and ask for God's healing. He still wants to offer that healing today. These were wonderful gifts. But I want to come back to frankincense as a perfume. I saw a program on SBS some years ago and I wish I, 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 I flicked onto it as it was actually in progress. I wish I'd known it was on and I'd recorded it because I'd forgotten half of what it said. But there was one part of that program that's really stuck in my mind. And they said that for the last however many thousands of years, Bedouin men have loved the perfume of frankincense. And this is what they do with it. You know how they wear those long flowing robes? Well, what they do is they get a tiny, tiny little piece of frankincense and it smoulders away. It doesn't, because it's resin, it doesn't burn and then it's all disappeared. It will just smoulder away for hours and it will smoke. That, that was how it was used for incense. So somewhere in their robes, they have a little container, I presume a little pottery container, with this tiny, tiny piece of smouldering frankincense. And they carry that in their robes all day. And as they walk around and do whatever it is they're doing, whatever work they're doing all day, that perfume envelops the whole of their garments and they walk around all day enveloped in this cloud of frankincense perfume. Now, I've been wafting around in a cloud of Victoria Beckham. By the end of the day, I'll guarantee you that that perfume will have faded away and by the time I go to bed tonight, there'll be hardly any perfume left. But for these men, because it's just constantly smouldering, the perfume is there as long as they are wearing their robes and carrying that, the perfume envelops them. Now, when I think about frankincense burning as a picture of our prayers going up to heaven, that blows me away. That is exactly how Jesus led his life. His whole life was enveloped in prayer, in communication with his heavenly Father. He did nothing unless he and his Father had been in communication about it. His prayer life with his Father enveloped him. 
But it shouldn't just be Jesus. It's our prayer life that should just be like that, that just simply envelops us 24-7. There will be times when we just simply sit and worship God in prayer. There will be times when we cry out in agony to him. But the older I get, the more it seems to me with prayer, it's like an attitude of life. It's not so much setting it, although we do, we set aside times for prayer, but it's how we should be living our whole life, consciously in communion with our Heavenly Father. (laughs) Prayers are not necessarily having to be put into words all the time to plead with God about something. It's almost like, a thought that passes from you to God with almost without having to put it into words to just simply be there in our relationship with God. And the other thing that blows me away with this, and I don't know how to interpret this, I'm going to leave it up to you to think about what the interpretation might be. Frankincense, other than gold, was the most costly thing available in the ancient world. And God regarded it as so special that people were not to use it for their personal use. It was to be kept solely for worship of him in the incense. Now, if the rising cloud, if the rising smoke from the incense is a picture of our prayers, what does that tell us? Is it that that's how God values our prayer? I don't know. Is it that he values our prayer that much? Or is it that we value God that much as we pray to him? Other religions offer their prayers, but it's a hope against hope that their God might hear them. If their God's not interested or doesn't know anything about them or can't be bothered, their God's not going to hear them. We know that our prayers go to a loving God who has the very best plans for us, better than we can ever imagine. He has our very best interest at heart. So is it that this is this priceless substance of our prayers rising because they're going to a God who is beyond price? Maybe it's both. I don't know. I leave that for you to think about. But as you go into the new year, take with you the thought, the wise men came to worship Jesus. The gifts they brought represented He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our God. He is the one who brings us healing. And he is the one with whom we can have this 24-7 close association, be enveloped in that association with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those men from the East who came with such precious gifts for baby Jesus but who saw more that he was not just a king, but that he was God as well, and who came to worship him. And Father, as we finish this old year and go into this new year, so we would go into it with hearts that want to worship you, with perhaps a new understanding of prayer that symbolises our relationship, our fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us and that you will be with us right throughout this new year. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.